Today's guest is Kush Varshney. Kush is a distinguished research scientist and senior manager at IBM's Watson Research Center. A prolific researcher and writer, Kush is deeply curious in how to build trustworthy machine learning systems, which he recently published a book on. In addition to this, he's a founding member of IBM's Science for Social Good initiative. In our chat, you'll hear about Kush's intellectual and career journey, advice on how to stand out as a researcher, and insights from his latest work on the colonialism AI, an analysis of the deeply ingrained Western values in AI, and how to make it more inclusive and useful for a global community. Hi, everyone. I'm Sheikh. Welcome back to Humans of AI, where we meet the people that are building the technology that's changing our world. Kush, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure, Sheikh. So thanks for having me. Yeah. Kush, the very first question I like to ask my guests is, how do you describe your work to a five-year-old? Yeah, I actually have twin seven-year-olds at home, so I have a lot of experience. (laughs) this way. So, I mean, I think right now, especially with these really powerful language models that we're seeing, I think relating it back to their own growth is a good way to say it, right? So when kids are just maybe like a year old or so, they're starting to repeat words. And so that's where language models start. They're, I mean, kind of completing sentences, completing words and so forth, but they're kind of babbling a little bit. Then a little bit later, they start following and instructions. So, I mean, tell them they'll put a cup on the table and maybe like half the time they'll do that. And then they start chatting. I mean, then they're at a point where, I mean, really respond, they're talking back and forth. So I think that's kind of the initial steps. And then at that point is when we start teaching them our culture, our values, morals, and and these sort of things. And that's where I get involved. So kind of looking at what are all the good things, the bad things that we can do with AI and kind of working on making sure that that happens. Nice, nice. I'm in the exact same boat as you. I have two girls that are six and eight, but a twin seven-year-old sounds a lot more dangerous. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) As they've gotten older, have your thoughts on introducing them to technology and concepts and AI shifted at all? Yeah. So actually, I mean, I have had them play around with ChatGPT and with stable diffusion and and these sort of things, because I think it is valuable. I mean, not like alone, I mean, sitting with me and and doing it, but yeah, because this is going to be the future. They should have some sense of what things are like, and I'd rather have them doing this than other mischief that they can get into. (laughs) So yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. My favorite use case so far has been writing custom bedtime stories there. So they think I'm a lot more creative than I actually am. (laughs) Nice. Cool. Well, you know, you've done so many cool things over the years. Could you tell us overview of what your career story is and maybe what were some of the inflection points along the way that led to your current research? As you did as well, I went to Cornell for my undergrad. I was majoring in electrical and computer engineering and then went straight to a grad school at MIT. And I was drawn to more of kind of the mathematical side of electrical engineering and that included single processing and related sort of topics. And that kind of morphed into uh, doing more machine learning stuff as well. So they're, I mean, very intimately related and kind of form a continuum. And then as I was going through that and I did my PhD, I kind of had a sense that I do like doing research a lot, but maybe not so much some of the other aspects of being a professor. So then I was looking for industrial research labs to join. And at that time, this was before deep learning and all that stuff. So 
there weren't a lot of companies who had uh, really strong machine learning research mm. going on. IBM was one of them and really felt like a great opportunity to be here. And yeah, the group that I ended up joining was led by Sashka Moisilovich. And they were really doing a lot of amazing stuff that I hadn't even thought of that Oh, could you use machine learning and apply it to making predictions about people? Like these days, it seems very natural, but like, oh, you can make predictions about employees to manage them better. You can make predictions about the healthcare system to do all sorts of good things. So, yeah, I mean, that was quite unique at that time. And it's <laughs> just kind of like, let me do this. And it was great. And I've been here ever since as we were doing a lot of those sort of projects. So balancing kind of fundamental like mathematical sort of research with applications, we kind of understood that when you're making these predictions about people, it really has a big consequential sort of effect on their lives. And mm -hmm. that's when the shift started happening. So we got into doing more things like fairness, explainability, robustness, and, and so forth. And at the same time, I also kind of saw an opportunity and started volunteering with this organization named DataKind, mm -hmm. which connects practicing data scientists to uh, nonprofits and other social change organizations mm -hmm. and started doing some projects with them. And that experience kind of led to Sashka and me also starting our own social good program at IBM that we ran for several years. So all of those things then came together. We created a bunch of open source toolkits, saw the need for that in addition to kind of fundamental research that we were doing. So AI Fairness 360 was the first open source toolkit that our team created. And it was a Python toolkit that a lot of practicing data scientists could include in their workflows. And we followed that up with other toolkits, pushed stuff into some of the IBM products mm -hmm. as well. So the first fairness sort of bias mitigation algorithm in an enterprise grade commercial product yeah. came out of our work and, and so forth. So all of that was happening. And then some other inflection points, I guess, with the family, I had a chance to spend three months at the IBM Research Lab in Nairobi, Kenya. That was kind of a change. Let me kind of be away, have a different vantage point on the work and it kind of gave me some space so that when I came back, I decided to write a book on trustworthy machine learning and that was a different experience and it's led yeah. to different opportunities and so forth. And then some things without my active sort of participation, but they've also been an inflection point is I think what we mentioned before ChatGPT. So since that's kind of caught the popular imagination, we already were working on some large language models, sort of things related to trustworthiness and AI, but it kind of really forced us to go all in and uh, kind of do, do things there. So that's what we've been doing in the well, last year. There's so many gems in there to unpack. The first thing to start with then would be, you mentioned your experience in founding IBM's Science for Social Good initiative. Yeah. Can you give an example of some of the mm -hmm. projects you've undertaken there? Yeah, it's been something we've been doing since around 2015, early 2016, and done probably close to 40 projects with different nonprofits and so forth. Let me mention one project that we're still writing the paper for. I mean, outgrowth of our research sort of program and working with our business unit as well on it. So it's a collaboration with this organization called Alabama Appleseed, as well as another organization called the Center for Court Innovation. And what we analyzed was some things called legal financial obligations, which are basically fines and fees that are part of the sentence for different sort of misdemeanors in the state of Alabama. And in Jefferson County specifically, there's this practice which is much more prevalent than in other states and, and so forth. So people will get these fines, which are much more than what 
might reasonably be thought of as a reasonable sort of thing. And it's already known in some sense that, yes, there's racism and, and other things happening, systemic racism and so forth. But what we actually did was look at it and analyze it in a very fine-grained manner, in a more actionable manner. And so we utilized this set of techniques called uh, multidimensional subset scanning, which I learned about from my Africa Lab colleagues. So they're some of the pioneers in this technical sort of piece of work. And we've been using it, so highlighting finding anomalous subpopulations, which mm -hmm. happen to be ones that are related to kind of race and neighborhood characteristics and so forth, but kind of illustrates like certain age groups, certain education levels as well of where the fines are more than others and on what kinds of crimes. And we've been working with the judiciary in Jefferson County through Alpine Apple Appleseed and They've been really oh. responsive to it, and that analysis has actually now led to further work that Alabama Appleseed is doing with the judiciary there. And so they're actually now starting a pilot program where instead of these large fines, they're doing this sort of thing where they'll just charge $100 for everything. Mm -hmm. And if you immediately pay, then you're done as the defendant. And so that kind of reduces the debt burden a lot, also just takes away a lot of the stress for the people and then so forth. So... That's been, I mean, a really great sort of piece of work. That's incredible. Yeah. Wow. Now, looking at an or extrapolating from that experience, looking at a organization like Alabama Apple Seeds, and mm -hmm. they were largely able to accomplish this work because they were serendipitously paired with you and the expertise of your team. But there are probably so many different social good mm -hmm. organizations out there that would mm -hmm. benefit from it similar approach, what would be your advice to one of these organizations that wants to do something like this, but doesn't have the mm -hmm. technical expertise in-house to start? Actually, the introduction of these large language models and so forth is democratizing the access to a lot of the technologies. So let me just give you a quick example of another group that we had worked with in the past. And yeah. now that we had the foundation models and how easy it was for them to do the same analysis in a much quicker fashion. So about, let's say, five years ago or so, we worked with this organization, International Center for Advocates Against Discrimination. And the task we were doing with them was a natural language processing task where they had certain sort of documents which relate to human rights violations and so forth. And they wanted to label different sentences mm -hmm. by what are called the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, which is a set of 17 goals that were ratified by the member nations of the right. UN in 2015. So they relate to hunger, poverty, all sorts of different things. So this human rights sort of things, when they map them to the UN SDGs, then it's useful for further analysis that they do. So we spent a couple months, developed this fancy NLP stuff five years ago, and then it worked pretty well. But then in January of this year, so I met up with one of the folks from ICAD and in just five minutes, we used ChatGPT and were able to do, I mean, exactly the <laughs> thing, right? out of the box. And she was doing it herself. I mean, I was just sitting next to her and she did it. Right? So the point is the skill level, I think, is going quite down in terms of these interfaces now that we have are quite mm -hmm. low code, no code and, and so forth. They are empowering of different sort of subject matter experts to do things themselves and I think this is going to be the change that we see. Uh, so the sort of data science mm -hmm. profession isn't going to be required for a lot of analyses uh, going forward. Yeah. What a difference five years makes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> huh. Shifting gears and looking at other aspects of your 
research. You recently uh, published a fascinating paper called Decolonial AI Alignment that looks at the development of large language models and how mm-hmm. it follows colonial values largely mm-hmm. driven by Western companies that impose what do you call a monoculture of ideas. What was the inspiration that led to your thesis there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so again, I mean, in this past year, it's been like a sort of a reflective time for me. Like what, like all these things are changing. Everything is now different than it was. And so, yeah, I was looking at it and there are a few companies that are, if you look at it through a particular lens, they do are acting in some kind of metropole sort of fashion. So like in the colonial sort of way, they're a uh, few powerful companies, they are kind of going in and not really allowing people to uh, have their own values reflected in the behaviors of these models, although that might be changing as well. But the Western values or whatever the values of the, the actual developers are reflected in the constitutions or the other sort of behaviors of the choosing of uh, what to guardrail, what not to guardrail and so forth in there. So when you look at it in that sense, in the past, colonialism wasn't just an economic sort of thing. So part of what happened in many sort of examples of colonialism is that kind of the colonizers' moral philosophies were imposed in such a way that they were made to be seen as kind of like the neutral, secular, rational sort of way of looking at it, whereas the moral philosophies of the colonized people were made to be exotic or just weird in some ways and kind of discounted in ways as well. So that kind of view, in my mind, is recapitulated when we look at what is happening a little bit. And it doesn't kind of stop just on that value like imposition. But another thing that is kind of part of this overall sort of thing is that in Western philosophy, there's a strong trend towards universalism, that whatever philosophy you choose, you kind of believe it, you go all in on it, and you don't allow for other philosophies to coexist. Whereas in certain other sort of uh, philosophical traditions, that is the case where it's actually kind of very natural, very normal for even a single person to hold multiple philosophies in their mind, even if they conflict a little bit at the same time. So what I think this implies for AI development is, especially the alignment process, is that we should have kind of approaches that allow for some conflict, some multiple values, especially ones that uh, where the end user, the deployer of the models, their affected communities are able to express their own values in, in the behavior and then based on the context, be able to choose the right ones and, and, and so forth. So. Yeah, that's something I strongly believe in. Mm -hmm. I think, how did it come to me? Where did it come from? I mean, my family is originally from a place that was colonized. So maybe there's some of that. Um, Some of my ancestors did actively work toward what was called Swaraj. um, So independence uh, from uh, Mm -hmm. from the British in India and and so forth. I think spending some time in Africa was maybe something, I mean, kind of happening in my mind. And just being at IBM, I think also, because we are different than many other tech companies where the idea is for our technology is to help other companies do what they need to do rather than having our own platform and and so forth. So we deal with all sorts of industries, all sorts of sectors, all sorts of geographies, and making sure that the technology is appropriate for all those different settings, whatever the social norms, the laws, the industry standards, the corporate policies, et cetera, might be. So I think that is also part yeah. of the thinking. Two of the terms that you use are dharma and mm-hmm. 
pluralism. Yeah. Could you talk a bit more about what those terms are and yeah. how that's a preferred approach to ethics? Yeah, sure. So pluralism or value pluralism specifically is the idea I was saying before, that there shouldn't be like a single universal sort of ethics that everyone should be abiding by in that sort of sense. So value pluralism is that, yes, there can be many sort of value systems that are equally valid. So that's that. Dharma, it's also a technical term if you think about it. It's kind of coming from a lot of South Asian or Indian sort of traditions Mm -hmm. And it's the idea of having, I mean, what is the law of what is right or wrong, what is good and bad. And specifically, there are two different kind of categories of dharma. So one is sadharan dharma and the other is vishesh dharma. So sadharan dharma is sort of general sort of good and bad that a lot of people would agree to, like not stealing and not lying, these sort of things. And then vishesh term is a little bit more specific. It's things that aren't like kind of the generic ones, but they're particular Mm -hmm. to your own situation, to your own sort of station in life, to your community, to the situation and context that you're in. And then in those cases, what are the right things to do or wrong things to do? And not really even what they are, but how to think about it. So, you know, kind of moral sense, like, If there's a prince who's about to enter into a war where the uh, opposite side has uh, a lot of his relatives, then should he, I mean, participate in that war and kill them and so forth? Mm -hmm. Uh, But based on whatever his sort of context is, maybe that is the right thing to do. So that would be kind of an example. But in the AI sort of space, we're kind of seeing this all the time as well. So when we talk to different customers, different clients and different industries, they'll have these general sort of things that they want to align according to, which are things like they don't want hallucination, they don't want hate speech, toxicity, leakage of private information, these sort of general things. But then there happen to be specific things for their own purposes as well, which are very much this vishesh term sort of thing. So mm. like the grocery store we were, a grocery store chain we were talking to recently, they don't want their chatbot to ever mention poisonous food items. So yeah, I mean, it's yeah. a good thing for them. It wouldn't apply in general. Or there's a law in China right now, which says that all generative content must espouse the core socialist values, which is great for language models deployed in China, right? But it might not be needed elsewhere. Or a bank that we're talking to wants to make sure that their chatbot doesn't kind of refer to other banks or other banks' products, which again is fine. It makes sense for what they need to do. For IBM ourselves, we have strict business conduct guidelines. So we want to make sure that our models, when for our like internal use cases, respect those business conduct guidelines. So we're seeing this alignment process needing to not just be a generic general sort of thing, the Sadharan thing, but a Vishesh uh, particular specific thing mm-hmm. as well. It seems you could make the case that the most important machine learning textbook is the Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> yeah, that is the prince who is entering into the uh, right, battle right. against his enemy, his relatives awesome. on the enemy side. Yep. Huh. Well, on the more practical side, given where AI tech is right now, let's say I'm PM at a big company and I'm working on rele- injecting an AI feature into a product. Mm-hmm. What are some of the ways I can mm-hmm. incorporate these frameworks mm-hmm. into my own work? And what would be the right point in the development process pipeline to ask these questions? So in my book, Trustworthy Machine Learning, I mean, I repeatedly kind of say not to take shortcuts as kind of one of the main messages. And 
I think that is the biggest piece of advice I would give to a project manager, product developer, anyone. And what I mean by that is throughout a development lifecycle, whether it's traditional machine learning or the kind of foundation model lifecycle that's now emerging, every point of that process, there's things to consider. So just in the framing of the problem or the specification of the problem, what are the things I need to worry about and what do I need to consider when I'm doing data stuff? What are the things that I need to look out for? Kind of later on in modeling, evaluation, I mean, all of the parts uh, have certain things that need to happen. And all of that, we're starting to call it as governance, right? So mm -hmm. throughout the entire life cycle, making sure that all of the potential mitigations, all of the different checks, all of them are done. And that when things fail, that there is some sort of warning or some sort of stop that's put in and... Yeah, I mean, just controlling the process going forward according to whatever those values and principles and laws and, and so forth are. So, yeah, I don't mm. say that there's any one point. I mean, it's really, it should permeate uh, throughout. Yeah. You mentioned the book that you wrote, A Trustworthy mm -hmm. Machine Learning, and it was mm -hmm. first published in February of 2022. Mm -hmm. If you were to create a revised edition of that mm -hmm. book now, given everything that's mm -hmm. happened in the past year and a half, what would you modify or what would be additional content that you would yeah. inject in there? Yeah, so I wouldn't modify a whole lot, but I would add certainly more stuff about foundation models. And yeah, I was actually just in Dublin a few weeks ago giving a whole like day worth like course on the book. Essentially in the last like hour I spent on the additional new content on foundation models. And a few different things come up, right? So one is that this life cycle is a bit different uh, with foundation models versus traditional machine learning. So the kind of process with the traditional model starts with this problem specification, then comes to getting data, preparing it, then modeling, and then evaluating and mm -hmm. deploying. Whereas with the foundation models, there's just a lot of like data stuff first, training of this pre-trained base model, and then you come to adapting it, so figuring out what the problem is and so forth. So, so I mean, some alignment or instruction tuning and these sort of things, and then you come to uh, evaluating, which is not even doable fully in the way that you could for traditional machine learning. So it's more auditing than really testing. So probing into the different potential behaviors that might have emerged and so forth, and then adding some guardrails and then integrating into applications and going from there. So just the life cycle being different, I think, is one major thing that I would certainly discuss. The other is some new risks that are emerging with the language models that we didn't see with the traditional models. So I mentioned them before, but one big category is the hallucination sort of stuff. So lack of faithfulness, lack of factuality and generated output. Also lack of attributing the sources, where did the information come from in the prompt and the fine-tuning data and the original training data and so forth. So how do we know where the information came from? So all of that, I think, is one big category. Second big category is related to the interaction itself. So mm -hmm. now that there's generative output, there's much more possibility for bullying, gaslighting sort of behaviors, for hate speech, for other toxicity and these sort of things. So that would be a, a, another main component and how to, to work on those. And the other thing I would maybe kind of add on is also some discussion about kind of safety versus creativity. So mm. the book already talks a lot about safety, defining it and kind of what yeah. it means and so forth. But the creativity aspect, which is what generative AI lets us do, is interesting, right? So we can think of safety as a constraint. So that 
even mathematically, we can show that it limits creativity in compositional sort of generative sort of senses. And so like, there's this trade-off between safety and creativity. And for different applications, that's actually good, right? Because if you want the model to help you write poetry or your kids' bedtime stories, then you want creativity. Safety isn't so much of a concern, maybe a little bit, but not so much, but then there's more like serious sort of applications, let's say with contracts or other things where safety is paramount and creativity is not really kind of part of the question. So kind of like thinking through the safety creativity trade-off is an interesting new thing that's also emerging, I think. Without giving away any, mm-hmm. any spoilers of what you have cooking up, mm-hmm. what's next for you in terms of research focus and things we can expect out of your lab in the next year? I mean, it's no secret we're working on foundation model stuff. So a lot of our... I think you have to at this point. Pretty much. (laughs) So a lot of our work right now is geared towards a new IBM product called Watson X Start Governance. And so we're adding a bunch of source attribution sort of capabilities, more transparency and governance sort of capabilities for the foundation model sort of use cases. We're developing different detectors for these new behaviors. So detecting potential hate speech, profanity, implicit hate, gender ambiguity, the model talking about violence, hallucinating, all sorts of different things. So those are all on our plate. And yeah, I mean, some further out looking stuff that we're starting to do more of is thinking about kind of how to make models more empathetic, have more of a mutual theory of mind with the user. So kind of in the sense of can the model understand, have a, the model itself having a model for the user, like what's mm-hmm. in their mind, what would they expect, and helping the user also better understand kind of a mental model of the LLM so uh, that there's more productive and trusted sort of relationship between the two. And that's something that we're trying to even figure out what that means, but it's something of, of, of interest. Nice, awesome. Well, the very last question I have mm-hmm. for you, Kush, is looking through your career story, it seemed the emergent pattern was really just following your own curiosity and being clear about what your values were. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, as you look at all the researchers on your team and mm-hmm. people you've worked with throughout the years, are, are there any particular habits that you'd say the best researchers have that they've been able to generate mm-hmm. great results with, things that set people apart? I would say there's a couple of things in combination that are good characteristics of researchers. So one is having the technical depth on things, so not kind of looking at things superficially. So certainly going in and kind of making sure that the fundamentals are strong across, I mean, different areas. And that leads to the second sort of point, which is having breadth in the sense of like, curiosity, like about, in my case, let's say moral philosophy or how the social sector works or this or that or whatever. And because the best sort of research, in my opinion, happens at the intersection of different fields. Mm-hmm. So one piece of work we did on privacy in the healthcare system and, and these sort of things actually used a technique from audio signal processing. And it kind of like combined these different sort of fields together to do something unique, which wouldn't have happened otherwise. So like having that open-mindedness, the ability to kind of bring in something from a different field into what you're doing and having that technical depth to actually do it in a good way. Nice. Well, Kush, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for making time to share your story. Yeah, it was my pleasure. And yeah, thanks again for having me. This podcast 
and brought to you by H10. Part about advanced technology that never changes is the need for the right people to design, build, and manage it. H10 offers just that with an on-demand talent and management service that covers all aspects of engineering, program management, and AI. Trusted by over 400 companies, including half of the Fortune 10, H10 is here to help lighten your load and make you the hero. 